0: Hello, wrestling fans. My name is Al Getz, and this is Charting the Territories, your monthly look back at professional wrestling in the territorial era. Uh, It's coming out this month on the autumnal equinox. So summer is turning into fall for most of our listeners. So I hope everyone had a great summer. I know I sure did. I spent a lot of it traveling in the country, going to different baseball stadiums we'll talk a little bit about that later on, but I do want to acknowledge that I'm not the only person on this podcast my co-host as always is with us john John Boucher John how was your summer? It was good it was good i didn't do i did not nearly as much traveling as you no um, well you went to city field at least once I know that traveled so, once to yes. see you yeah. but it was good it was good i i'm it's it's weird. It's like getting dark already. You know
1: the summer coming, so I get a little a little bit of that that end of end of summer sadness. You know the back to school sadness sets in, even though I'm a 50 year old man. let's uh, look at the back to school sad a little bit, but uh, you know I like the fall, so that's you know like the sweaters get to wear a sweater. You know, yes, yeah, nice. went from
0: t shirt weather to sweater weather. Sweater weather. Yes. Yes. Well, great. Well, speaking of the summer, this month on the podcast, we will look at the summer of 1978 in Leroy McGurk's wrestling territory of Oklahoma, Louisiana, and the surrounding areas. There's a big card at the Superdome with two very different attendance figures that have floated around years later credited to it. Ernie Ladd feuds with Paul Orndorff. The Brute is seeing red, a title change that may not have been a title change, unless it was a title change, a maskless Jerry Stubbs debuts, and a whole lot more. Also, we have a brand new YouTube channel that for now is going to feature playlists for all of John's curated match recommendations. (laughs) Our longtime listeners know we uh, generally spotlight two or three different wrestlers who were in the territory during the time period we cover each month on the podcast, and John puts together a short list of YouTube footage for you to check out if you want to see them in action. And it, it just dawned on me about a week or so ago that I can take those match recommendations and put them into a playlist and put that playlist on a YouTube channel. So now we have all the playlists Um, going back through February of this year. So we've got uh, seven or eight months uh, worth of playlists already loaded And each month as each episode of the podcast comes out. I will add playlists for the wrestlers that are featured that month. So it's a great way to catch up on some wrestling footage and see what's out there on the YouTube. So be sure to check it out and or subscribe to it by searching for Charting the Territories on YouTube. And John, you also have the YouTube channel that uh recently you've added some new stuff to. So tell our listeners oh, yeah. about that.
1: Yeah, I just uh recently got back uh five additional reels of the, the Luthes Buddy Lee UWA TV from nineteen seventy
0: six. So those are all all transferred and they look gorgeous. Yeah, the um, quality the quality looks great. And don't give away too much of what's on there, because I know we're going to talk about one of the matches, I think, from these reels a little later on in the podcast, although it might have been from a different UWA reel. But in particular, it features a very young kid who's gigantic and who, of course, would go on to a gigantic career in wrestling. Uh, what was his name at the time? And, of course, who would he be better known as to wrestling fans today? Uh, he's, he's, he's billed
1: here as Terry Terry Meeker, uh, and he he's i think I believe he's 14 years old in in one
0: of the one of the reels. Like, and I, he I, looks—he looks at least 19. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, and that's dude. being, you know, that's being, you know, generous. That's that saying we know that Terry was a big boy, but you know, for yeah, yeah he's just, yeah, it, it's amazing uh, how young he was when he started, and and all things considered, again, he's not, you know, polished and solid at this point in time, but given his age. And yeah, as an experience, good. he he yeah. handles himself pretty pretty well. Yeah, he does absolutely. Um, yeah,
1: and if you want to search for that stuff there, rather than search for my name, you can probably uh, just search for UWA Luthes in YouTube, and my stuff will be the first that comes up most likely. So find that there if you if, you, if you're if you're into seventies territorial outlaw stuff. Yeah, This this will be right in your wheelhouse.
0: Yeah, I think listeners of our podcast are very interested in that. So if listening (laughs) to us isn't enough, you can watch some old wrestling footage as well. And of course, this month on the podcast, uh, I will quiz John's wrestling knowledge as he plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. And of course, the other regular features, including this month I learned. And as always, we kick things off with Shit John Bought Me Off eBay. So, John, there are a good number of wrestling books out there. And for the most part, they fall into a couple of main categories. There are wrestler biographies or autobiographies. There are books about a territory that sort of, you know, delve into the behind the scenes workings. There are what I like to call the results books, uh, in particular the, the books of Mark James, noted wrestling historian, that just sort of run down results. But there's another genre of wrestling books that is not as well documented, and that is the world of wrestling cookbooks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as I know, there are only three of them. Uh, I think Jim Ross has one. which was a tie-in with his barbecue sauce. There's a Lucha Libre one. Oh, wow. And there's a third one that I can now say I am the proud owner of, thanks to Shit John Bought Me Off eBay, as this month's item is an original copy of the 1979 tome, Permanently (laughs) Cooking with World Champion Danny Hodge.
1: Yeah, baby. And...
0: I didn't even notice this when you when I first got the item, but I was looking through it today, and it's autographed. Yeah, this is kind of a I, I, kind of a steal. For I was our, going to say because our budget. Yeah, because we're you know we are. Uh, I generally try and limit John to around fifty dollars, <laughs> and when this came, I'm like, I hope he's not you know saying, well, this one was it's a little over. A wink, year. wink. <laughs> um, but this was published in 1979. But this uh, uh, the on the inside cover, it's. Handwritten, there's a date of April 20th, 1991, and it says, To Wayne and family, my very good friends, God bless you all, Danny Hodge. P.S. Use with love. Aww. I don't know if if this was ever officially for sale in bookstores, or if it was something he self-published and and sort of sold around to friends and family. But there's a lot of different sections. I'm I'm not a very good cook. I have yet to try any of the recipes. The first section has some beverages, so I might try making his party punch, and having some before a and and drinking it before a future podcast episode. (laughs) <laughs> what is in the party punch? Uh, well, there's two variations of party punch. One contains Jell-O, pineapple juice, 7-Up, sugar, and lemons. Okay. And oh. the other has sugar, ginger ale, water, unsweetened pineapple juice, lime juice, cranberry juice, and lemon juice. Okay. Oh. Uh, and aside from the food recipes, the actual, the first recipes in the book are uh, Danny... Showing a surprising sense of humor, given everything we know about Daniel. One of the things I do want to say, I'm very surprised, but in looking through these recipes, I don't see a lot of recipes that call for crushed apples. That, yeah, you would think, right? You would, you say, would right? think that, you know, the whole point of this is, yeah, just, you know, the directions would say, take an apple and crush it in your hand and then mix it up and add this. But there's nothing like that. However, there is a recipe for a happy day. There is a recipe entitled How to Preserve Children and perhaps the most unusual recipe I have ever seen is a recipe for elephant stew. God. Which calls for one elephant. Okay. One bushel of onions. Okay. One peck of carrots. (laughs) Two rabbits. 80 pounds of salt. And a pinch of paprika. A little bit of paprika. <laughs> a pinch of paprika oh. is apparently enough to season a whole elephant. Yeah. Um, well, we'll we'll post this particular recipe on, on Twitter and probably some others as well. But uh, like I said, Danny Hodges is, is not known for being a cut up, but clearly <laughs> he has a sense of humor and exhibited this in this cookbook. So, John, I think I know the answer to this, but uh, you know, oftentimes I ask you – How you found this item? I I think this was something you had actively been looking for for a while. Is that correct?
1: Oh yeah, I've been. I I I I am always looking. I have one wrestling cookbook. I have the Ilio DiPaolo cookbook. Um, which is is is,
0: there's very little humor in that. So there would be four wrestling cookbooks that we know of.
1: I have that, and so i saw this I'm actually searching for. And there's another one I'm also actively searching for. There's an OX Baker cookbook.
0: Oh my goodness gracious! Uh,
1: so uh, the 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 Hodge and the OX Baker one, I, I both have you know recurring searches set uh, up
0: for. I, I would have recurring nightmares about an OX Baker cookbook, let alone <laughs> recurring so, searches.
1: I, you know, but I the, the Hodge one I usually it usually is closer to like the two hundred dollar range. So. I usually see it; it comes up, and it's like, oh, "Buy it now for 200 I, you know, I, I watch it to see if he'll lower the price, or, or she'll lower the price, if, if they'll lower the price. Um, but this one I just saw for buy it now for like forty nine ninety nine or fifty dollars or whatever it was. It was right I'd, I'd below. I'd have been off. mad if you hadn't bought it. Yeah, yeah. so I was like, "Oh, I got to do this for Al
0: immediately." So I just snapped it, snapped it right up. Awesome. Yeah. and Like I said, I, maybe I'll look through the, the entire book and see if there is a meal that I think I could handle cooking-wise, and I will prepare it and take pictures and try it, maybe do a live taste test on a future episode of the podcast. Ooh. That could be fun as well. So, John, thank you. This is a You're great welcome. item. A- and I, I almost don't want to call it shit John bought me off eBay. <laughs> I want to call this month's edition Awesome Things That John yeah. Bought me off eBay.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you. you.
0: you. That book was published in 1979, just a year after the time period we're covering this month on the podcast, and that is the summer, the third quarter of 1978. So looking at the roster, and in particular, the main eventers, the uh, top-ranked wrestler, Based on their average weekly spot rating, our exclusive statistic that measures a wrestler's average position on the cards, the top wrestler is a heel, and it's Ernie Ladd. And other heels that are considered main eventers with a spot rating of .80 or above are the assassin, Jody Hamilton, and Jerry Brown. And what's interesting is Jerry Brown is mostly spending the quarter uh, as part of a tag team with Bobby Jaggers. But they had, each of them had a handful of signals matches during the quarter. And when those occurred, Browns were slightly higher on the cards than Jaggers. So we end up with a situation where Jerry Brown is a 0.80 weekly spot rating, just barely making him a main eventer. And Bobby Jaggers is a 0.77. So he's an upper mid-carder, but he's at the high end of the upper mid-carder range, which is between a 0.6 and a 0.8. So it's a very rare occasion where two members of a tag team are in different tiers, even though their spot rating is, is very close to one another. It happens very rarely, but it happens sometimes. One of the quirks of the system, because there's no such thing as a dedicated tag team division, that even the regular teams find themselves in singles competition Every now and then. Now, on the babyface side, the three top main eventers, the three top babyface main eventers are Paul Orndorff, Steven Littlebear, and Ray Candy. And Candy and Orndorff are both feuding with Ernie Ladd and and again I don't want to speculate but I guess if I had to take a wild guess who may have been booking or had a hand in booking at this time given that uh, he's the top heel and he's feuding with two of the three top baby faces, Ernie is as good a guess as anyone if, if Watts isn't the sole booker at this point in time now Candy beat Ladd at the Superdome this was uh, July 22nd 1978 but about a month later lad defeated orndorff to win the north american title so candy beats lad and both men go their separate ways lad wins the title which makes candy the de facto number one contender giving he had beaten lad a little while earlier which is pretty standard booking for the territories it might seem counterintuitive for the guy who lost a big match to be rewarded with a title match shortly thereafter but that scenario is is pretty standard uh, in these days. Uh, recall when Terry Funk was about to win the world heavyweight title, he went around to various territories and would put over their top stars to set up title matches down the line. And that happened here in late 1975 when he put over Watts. Then uh, Funk won the title and they then spent several months building to Watts getting a title shot against Terry Funk at the first ever wrestling card at the Superdome and now a couple of years later we're back at the Superdome and this was July 22nd 1978 and this card as I mentioned featured Ray Candy beating Ernie Ladd in a steel cage match also a North American title match Paul Orndorff successfully defended the title against Bruiser Brody, who was not full-time in this territory, but was being brought in for a few shots around this time. There's also a tag team match with the Assassin and the Brute, and the Brute here, recall, is uh, Mike Davis, a.k.a. Bugsy McGraw. But they defeated Steven Little Bear and Eric the Red. They also had a special match with two wrestlers brought in from outside the territory where Dusty Rhodes beat superstar Billy Graham by disqualification. There was also a Women's Battle Royal, which was won by Winona Littlehart, And in the opening bouts, Jose Lothario defeated Jerry Brown. Bobby Jaggers defeated Brian Blair. Ron Bass beat Randy Brewer. And Mike George beat the Mongol. Now, the attendance for this show is one of those that we really don't have a solid number on. There are two numbers that... Are floating around. Uh, one of them is 31,000 fans and the other is 23,800. And the 31,000 figure came from a newspaper article from July 4th, 1979, in Franklin, Louisiana. So this is a newspaper article written a year after the fact in a small town in Louisiana, and so mm. it's very possible that uh, when when they contacted you know the wrestling office for a, a little press release, the number was exaggerated by the office, uh, and maybe it wasn't. We don't know. What I will say is this: we have a gate figure for this card, and again, this is not official. This is not anything we've gotten from the commission, but it's been bandied about and attached to both of those attendance figures. Hmm. And that gate is $142,000. Based on gate figures we have for other Superdome shows and attendance figures for those shows, it generally looks like the average ticket price for the Superdome in the late 70s was just under $5 per ticket. Using that average, uh, $142,000 gate, translates to somewhere between twenty-eight and 29,000 people in attendance, which doesn't help us figure out if the 23,000 or the 31,000 number is more likely because this sort of falls smack dab in the middle. One thing I will say is this, at this time frame when they're running the Superdome, they're not opening up the whole thing they are yeah. when they plan it and remember they plan it a, a couple of months in advance when they you know sign the contract or whatever you, you know, to have the show on a certain date they have to give them the number of seats then and there they can't i don't believe they can adapt it if the yeah. if the demand for tickets over time is more than they thought or less than they thought it's not really scalable i think it's got to be set in stone and also i know for a fact i know of two people that told me they went to the superdome in 1980 the day of the show between michael hayes and junkyard dog and were unable to buy tickets because it was sold out
1: oh that's that's the the the, the show i was going to bring up like i've we've got these figures for the uh for the 7 2278 card for the, the jyd hayes is august 80 we've got the gate for that too is like uh was a one 183 right and the attendance for that i've read anywhere from 26 to twenty-eight thousand. Yeah. um so am i wrong am i remembering wrong and thinking that the interviews that i've heard with watts and cornet but the cornet the cornet interviews are, are basically he's getting this information from watts um that Watts always refers to the J.Y.D. Hayes as the biggest drawing card of the Superdome, or is he talking about
0: I think gate? dollar. I, I, I'm going gonna, gonna to assume they're referring to dollars. I, dollars, I think okay. that would be their mindset when, when talking biggest drawing. as um, as far as, yeah, as far as the number of people in the gate, I think even aside from this 31,000, I think there was another one before 1980 that had more fans, that had more paid oh. fans, but had a lower gate. Um, but again uh, you know and remember while yes we all know now that that the JYD Hayes angle is huge at the time they hadn't they normally were running the superdome four, superdome four times a year they had not run it earlier in 1980 this was the first one they're running where they're really using the, the new crew cuz Hayes and JYD came in in pretty late 79 and they're both pretty young relatively speaking so i it wouldn't surprise me if they put less seats available for that one than they did for some of the earlier Superdome cards.
1: Yeah. And for what it's worth, it's neither here nor there, and I don't know how – whenever you, 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 you hear Meltzer talk about these numbers, he, he has always you know, maintained that Watts always has padded these numbers by 10,000. So he's, his thinking is whatever number Watts gave, subtract 10,000, and that's your number. So I don't know if that's, if that's yeah, I mean, another extreme, another swing in the extreme in the opposite direction. I you know, I, like I can four. accept <laughs> I can
0: accept that numbers are padded. Uh, Ten thousand out of twenty five so thousand. It, it's I, I I can't accept that. Uh, but again, yeah. these are things. We really can't get the real, true, actual answer. And, and that's yeah. not because Watts or Cornette or Meltzer or anything are you know, wrong, but just we understand wrestlers embellish. It's literally part of their job description to lie. Yeah. So we have to just accept that that's what they do. Uh, and we use the tools we have. Like I said, we can understand. and And if I really wanted to, I could probably find what the advertised ticket prices were, and use that to see if this, if it makes sense that the average ticket price would be under five dollars, slightly under five dollars. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then yes, some of these attendance figures absolutely would be legitimate. Yeah. So there there are ways using math to sort of back around into things. What I'll say is this, Ray Candy and Ernie Ladd in the main event of the superdome in 1978 drew a very strong house by any measurable, uh, you know any any means of measurement, yeah. it's comparable, if not slightly higher than the pre the most of if not all of the previous cards held at the Superdome, uh, going back two years to when they first ran it in the summer of '76, and it also uh, it, it's also interesting to note that these are two black men in the main event. Yeah. And they are clearly the main event. Yes, you have Dusty and Superstar Graham. You have a North American title defense with Orndorff against Brody. And remember, Brody in 1978 is not Brody of 1985. No. He is an an outside star with some name value, but certainly not what he would be several years later. So uh, this was really – this drew well based on the main event, and that is Ray Candy and Ernie Ladd. Now, aside – from the main eventers lad orndorff candy Stephen littlebear the assassin jerry brown the upper mid carders in the territory who have a spot rating between .6 and .8 we have the brute jose lothario Siegfried Shtonka, eric the red randy tyler mike george kurt von hess and ron bass and we've talked about a few of these wrestlers uh, in the past on this podcast. We've done our, what I call our medium dives. We uh, discussed the career of the Brute and also actually had an interview with him. We talked yeah. about Jose Lothario. We talked about a little bit about Ron Bass when he had been here a few years earlier with his quote unquote brother and their quote unquote maw. That was Donnie and Ronnie Bass, managed by Ma Bass. But there's a wrestler here that we haven't really talked about. And at this point, he's been in the territory for a little over a year, which is a long stretch by you know, most measures for, for this era. And he's just finishing up his run in the territory. And, and sadly, the place he goes next, uh, it looks like he was getting going to get a really, really big push. And then a mm. uh, tragedy happened. And I'm yeah. talking, of course, about... Eric
1: the Red. I really, I really don't know how familiar like younger wrestling fans or even wrestling fans of our age who are slightly less obsessive than us would be with Eric the Red. Considering like when he passed away, there's not a ton of footage of him out there. So I want to first, I just feel like want to give like a rough description of Eric the Red, like a physical, like a big guy, long red hair. Big red beard, kind of looked like vaguely moon doggy, uh, but uh, red haired instead of like the the blonde, uh, and more of like the Viking sort of, you know, thing going on. And he had he had two not entirely dissimilar sort of main gimmicks. He had Eric the Red, which was the, the Viking type gimmick, when he had to get up with the helmet and the horns, the whole thing. Uh, and there was also Eric the Animal, which was more of a like a wild man thing with furs and a big bone it's supposed to be a whale bone. I think um, eventually that, that was in,
0: that was in Buffalo, Cleveland and Toronto, right?
1: Yep. 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 Okay. Yep. Um, and eventually by the looks of it, the, the footage that we have, it looks like these gimmicks, uh, at least visually sort of begin to co Cause you just see him as Eric, the red with the bone and minus the helmet or wearing like the, the, you know, the, uh, what do you call that? The uh, animal skin, like a, uh, pelt is that a pelt? A pelt. That what we call it? Sure, a pelt. Yeah. We'll, so we'll call that a pelt. See those, you see those gimmicks sort of like co-mingle sort of at a certain point. So his real real name is is, is Ib Hansen, uh, and he was a legit
0: a legit Dane. Yeah, and and uh, spell spell that spell his first name for our listeners. I b. Yeah, that's it. I b. Now, and some places you'll see it listed as Eric Hansen. Uh, I'm not sure if that uh that was an american Maybe perhaps that is the translation of ib or it was just something that he decided to go by when he came to america to make it easier for people I, uh, but his uh, you... his birth name was ib solvang it? hansen <laughs> yeah,
1: it, and it, it's uh it's, Ib is a very common name in Denmark. I think, if I recall correctly, from when I was reading, Ib is sort of the 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 Dane version of of Jacob. Uh, uh, you know, we we like we would call someone Jake. They would go with the 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 second half of that almost. Um, and yeah, you know, he's a legit Dane born in Odense, uh, Denmark, like a couple hours southwest of Copenhagen. I hope, I was really hoping to find some sort of cool immigration documentation for him, but I, I didn't have any luck because his name is very, very common in in Denmark. Even just doing digging for that name in newspapers, you, you'll find several well known Ib Hansens, and it also brings up a lot of uh, false positives for uh, in baseball result, results because it's uh, you know first base. You get a lot of first oh, base results. Oh, for so yeah. I didn't think that about was a, that. That. Was, <laughs> that was fun. And also, he did not emigrate from Denmark to the U.S., but to Canada. And there's not a lot of those Canadian passenger lists yet on Ancestry.com. But there's a very sort of I think you need to story. go to
0: AncestryA.com.
1: <laughs> that's the uh, Interesting story, how he ended up in Canada and in, 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 in wrestling. That was actually told really well by our friend Bill Watts, um, in an interview with, uh, Greg Oliver, cause he's Greg Oliver, of course, as he interviews everyone who needs to be interviewed here, um, a few years back. And he apparently was a really funny, gregarious social butterfly type, kind of a ladies man, which you, which you wouldn't think of by looking at him. Just really, really well liked. One of the few guys who could go drink for drink with Andre, just a, a guy who was really, really fun to be around. Uh, <laughs> Watts talks about him having a great sense of humor, Um, described him as incorrigible and being morally beneath even Bill Clinton, (laughs) which is is just the most Watts, the most uh, late 90s Watts quote you could possibly get, but also being really funny about being morally beneath even Bill Clinton. Um, So The story goes that Eric and his brother were both so lively and jaunty, I guess to put it nicely, that their grandfather decided to send them 4,000 miles away to Vancouver. Uh, and it was in Vancouver where Eric became obsessed with watching all-star wrestling promoted by Rod Fenton. And this is probably like, I want to say late 64, 65, maybe. Carl Gotch was in the territory and, and Rod Fenton by way of Carl Gotch was offering money, $500, $1,000, whatever it was to anyone who could stay in the ring with Carl Gotch for X amount of time or five minutes, 10 minutes. Uh, so somehow Eric somehow met and convinced Fenton to give him a shot in the ring with Gotch, um, and you know Eric being like a big, big dude, some of the boys coached him on how to survive this the allotted amount of time. So what Eric did was nothing in terms of offense, but he just held to the ropes, <laughs> which, given his size, was enough to get him through like the five or ten minutes, whatever it was, in the ring with Submission Master carl Gotch. Um, and according to Watts, Ross end did not give. Eric, any of the money that he won (laughs) but that was that was his introduction into wrestling how he first sort of dipped his big red toes into uh the wrestling business and it's almost immediately sent to japan and it was over there in japan after a few matches of legitimately like roughing roughing up and like beating a shit out of japanese wrestlers where he was finally smartened up to the business like this is a work stop beating dudes up um, I've heard quite a few stories of guys being smartened up, like right before their first match or even in the ring during their first match, you know, like loosen up skin. Um, but having that happen mid
0: tour of Japan is a, is a new one for me. Yeah. I don't think I've heard of that <laughs> scenario either. Now you mentioned, uh, at the beginning of talking about Eric, he's someone our listeners have probably heard of, but not, might not be terribly familiar with. And that's, that's by design, that's why we picked him, John. As I've told you, we we try and find what I call the Swamp Thing wrestlers, which Mm -hmm. are uh, Swamp Thing, before it was a a TV show in recent years, it was a movie from the mid-80s based on the comic book, but it was a movie that everybody had heard of, but nobody had actually seen. And in the case of Eric the Red, I think he's someone that our listeners for the most part have heard of, and maybe know a couple of things about him, but that's about it. And I think it's not only due to Uh, the length of his career and when his career ended, but also where he wrestled for much of his career. He's spending a lot of time in those Northeastern promotions, Buffalo, uh, Cleveland, you know, working for uh, the NWF and also Toronto. And those often don't get a lot of publicity as the glamour territories like Amarillo and California or even Portland, which might not be a glamour territory, but at the very least has... A a couple of subject matter experts, historians like Mike Rogers, who have documented it and shared their findings with people. But there's a great piece on kayfabememories.com written by our our pal Barry Rose, who is the uh, championship wrestling from Florida subject matter expert. Uh, uh, But in this one, he really gives some detail on Eric the Red's path through the territories leading up to him coming to Florida in the late summer, early fall of 1978. We'll post a link to it on Twitter. Be sure to follow me at Al gets wrestling, Al G E T Z wrestling, or go to com and check out uh, Barry Rose's posts about in the regional territory section for championship wrestling of Florida. But basically after Eric finished up here, in uh, the summer of 1978, he goes to Florida, uh, and he is in the midst of what appears to be a really strong push, perhaps uh, more than he had here. Here he sort of sells into an upper mid-card role. There are times when he's in the main events, there are times when his spot rating crosses over that threshold, but for the most part, he's a notch below the Ernie Lads and the Assassins. But it looks like in Florida, he might be even breaking through to a higher plane. And he's still, uh, he's not a spring chicken, but I believe he's in his early 40s by 1978. Uh, Well, he's 44. So he's still got an opportunity to to do a little something in his career. But uh, anyway, after an event, he flies back to Tampa. And as he is driving home, his car stalls or breaks down. And as he is crossing uh, across the other side of the street, I think back and forth to use a payphone to, you know, call for a tow, he gets struck by a, a vehicle um, going in the opposite direction. As he was trying to go, you know, uh, the uh, across traffic to get to his side of the street, he's hit by a car, his head hits the windshield, uh, and he goes into a coma and is hospitalized for, I think, about a week, and then yeah. sadly passes away. that was November 16th. Uh, He passed away Thursday, November 16th, just one week after being struck by an automobile while crossing a Tampa street in the early morning hours. He had never regained consciousness. So uh, a good, you know, seven days plus. So, uh, yeah, it's really sad uh, because he still had some years left him in the ring. But more importantly, you know, had many years left of a life if not yeah. in wrestling in something else and it's always sad when people get taken away from us too young and and, and let's be clear since both you and I are over the age of, of 44 yeah, 44 is definitely way too young <laughs>
1: yeah yeah uh, no, and, he, and he, you know and he had not not that it makes it any 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 less tragic if he didn't have a family but you know he had a wife and he's like five kids you know so it's even even more more tragic.
0: Uh, yeah, and, and you found an article in the uh, November seventeenth edition of the Fort Myers Press in Fort Myers, Florida. This is uh, after uh, Eric had passed away, so they're just updating you on on changes to the card. Uh, but Eric the Red is not the only one who can't appear, make a scheduled (laughs) advertised appearance. And again, we're talking about tragedy of Eric the Red, and it is very sad, but we're going to take a little lighter, light detour. The article says, professional wrestlers Eric the Red and Wahoo McDaniels, and it calls him Wahoo McDaniels with an S, who were both had scheduled matches at Lehigh Auditorium tonight, will not be able to attend. And this is interesting, because here it says, Eric the Red is still in critical condition, even though this article... uh, came out the day after he passed away. So perhaps news didn't get to the Fort Myers news desk in time, but it says Eric, the red was in a car accident and is in critical condition with head injuries at St. Joseph hospital in Tampa. As for Wahoo McDaniels, he recently canceled all his wrestling dates and has left the state for personal reasons.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm curious if. Oh, me too. I, I, and of course, <laughs> this might not have been you know real. That might have been the cover story they used. Which reminds me, there's also a, a, a good story about Eric the Red's appearance being tied into an injury angle when I believe it was Steve Kern suffered a legitimate injury. Well, we'll talk about that, but first, I'm looking up yeah. Wahoo McDaniel's profile on WrestlingData.com <laughs> to see if he truly took time off in November of 1978. Or if, like I said, it was just a cover story because he (laughs) left the territory and went somewhere else. So let's see, this is mid-November. So let's see, he's in Florida, he's in Florida. He works, he's also working in Houston and he's got a couple of shots in West Texas. He's booked for Odessa on November 8th. But yes, after uh, the show for the 17th which he's advertised for and doesn't appear he actually worked in florida on the 14th uh and then seems to be gone and then november 24th he's in houston the 26th he's in dallas and in december it looks like he is wrestling at least semi regularly in texas and georgie actually works a superdome show on christmas day so yeah uh it looks like it's more that he just left the territory and they came up with a cover story. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, as for Steve Kern, the story, uh, I believe, is that uh, Kern legitimately got injured. And yeah, um, yeah, and so, but what they decided to do was uh, claim it was suffered, you know, at the hands of Eric Dredd. But here's the story as it was uh, written in the, wrestling program for florida which was called the grapevine um see if i can find it of course now that i'm looking for it, oh here we go so uh it's an interview with kern mike and i were in the gym working out Explained Steve Kern to the grapevine. Just the two of us. We'd come in early when there was no one else around because we wanted to work on some moves I had in mind for Harley Race. And we didn't want anybody carrying any stories back to him. Uh, I love, I love stuff like that. Uh, This continues. Anyway, Mike had to leave for a few minutes, and no sooner had he gone out the door than Sonny King and his crew of Eric the Red and Pack Song showed up. What can I tell you? By myself, I never had a chance. I've got a broken leg, but I guess I'm lucky to be alive.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really makes those guys
0: out to be in monsters you know yeah not just badasses but that they you know they were waiting outside the gym for Mike to leave or or in theory for one of them to leave to uh, be able to get a three on one that's just great stuff so yes Eric the Red uh, Ib Hansen sadly passed away far too young and and at a time when it looked like he uh, still had something left to give to wrestling but more importantly had a wife and kids at home um, if you're not as familiar with Eric, the red, as you are with, uh, the Ernie lads and, uh, Paul Orndroth of the world, uh, as always, John has curated some footage that is available on YouTube. And as I mentioned earlier, we will put these together into a playlist and put it on our YouTube channel. So be sure mm-hmm. to check us out charting the territories on YouTube. So you've got three matches and they're yeah. all from about 1975, 1976. Yep. Um, there is one against Argentina Apollo from the IWA. There is one against Buddy Austin from, uh, uh, this is uh, George Cannon's Superstars of Wrestling, right? Yep. yep. Uh, in Windsor, yep. Ontario. And then yep. from the UWA in July of 1976, we have a tag team match with Eric the Red and Troy Graham against yeah. the Islanders. And John, who are the Islanders here? The Islanders are the, I, I like to refer to them as the mild
1: Samoans. <laughs> uh, you know, they're 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 young Afa and Sika baby face uh baby faces managed by gentleman Saul Weingaroff. And Troy Graham is a you know, young young pre dream machine there. Uh and this is uh you can see here that Eric is sort of what I mentioned, like the, the the gimmick sort of crossing over. Eric is sort of doing the he's Eric the red, but he's sort of doing the Eric the animal look with the with the with the pelt, like I said. Uh and it's Again, you could. A lot of his peers, Eric's. Um, there's an interview with with Bruce Swayze, uh, where he talks about Eric and how agile he was for a big guy. And you don't really, you know, back then you didn't. If you were a guy that looked like Eric, you didn't do much agile stuff as opposed to today. Everyone who can do it just does it. Back then, you just sort of he worked like the the big monster guy. But you can sort of get a feel that Eric is quicker than your average like monster heel here he does like the draping the guy's neck over the top rope jumping to the floor even when he just does stuff like to run in to break up at the recount he's much more spry than like you know a lumbering ox baker or someone like that um and they do a spot where eric's leaning over the top rope reaching trying to make the tag and he's standing on the bottom rope trying to get in a a little a little further and sika jumps on the rope's You know, and eventually like Eric bounces enough to flip over into the ring. So it's just like unusual sort of bumps for guys, a guy of that size to take on on TV in 1976. Um, Even by the way, he runs the ropes and you can just tell he's an athletic dude, you know, so – I, I like and, and the quality of
0: course is great because it's one of my, my transfers. We'll yeah, the quality of, the, of John's <laughs> UWA stuff <laughs> is great. Uh, yeah. Your quality control is better than the quality control of the Newcastle Pennsylvania News sports section uh, when it comes to typos in pro wrestling ads. Because one of the things that we're going to put up on Twitter is a couple of ads you found from Newcastle, Pennsylvania. And I guess this is at the time, was this at the time that Eric was wrestling in the area? Yeah. Or Okay, yeah. so, the, okay, yeah, there we go. He's in the main event for a September 7th card against champion Pedro Morellis. <laughs> and that's spelled M-O-R-E-L-L-I-S. Yep. Pedro Morales. And also yeah. on the card is, and this paper only lists the last names for some of these guys, but it's yeah. Sam Martino and Browser with a Z, who I'm going to assume is Bulldog Brower, versus Kowalski and Van Ruskin, R U S K I N, which I am uh, assuming is Baron von Raschke, correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And, so you, and there's you're,
1: three you're wrong. You're wrong about Browser? Guess
0: okay. Again. One more guess. One more guess. Um, I don't know. Again, early seventies. WWWF is my one of my weak spots. This is actually, uh, I guess it's 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 Bruno's uh, Spectator Sports promotion.
1: So I guess technically not WWF, but crossover. That is Dick the Bruiser. So
0: that is that, that's supposed to be a Bruiser. So yeah. Bruiser. They put browser with a Z. Yeah. Interesting. Now And then you posted another one, or you you sent me another one from January 1973, and you actually made me an offer. Uh, So I'll I'll go over the ad first. Uh, The main event is San Martino versus Tonaki. T-O-N-A-K-I. I'm guessing that's Toru Tanaka. Yes. Also, Monsoon versus Eric the Red, and everything's spelled correctly there. But then uh, the oh, the first match they list Zabisco, spelled somehow with an X. Yep. It's X B Y S Z K O. So I guess that's Xbizgo <laughs> versus Swazi instead of Swayze, S W A Z E. But there's another match, and it's Danucci and Parisi versus Von Eric and Laka. L-O-C-K-A. And John, you said to me, if I can guess who Laka is supposed to be, without looking up the card, that you would buy me a cake. Now, what I'm going to say to you is, instead of buying me a cake, I have a cookbook with several cakes in it. So if I'm able to guess... I want you to buy me the ingredients I will need to make one of these cakes. It sounds this is even better. That's even better okay. idea. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. again, as I mentioned, early 70s WWF or Bruno's Western Pennsylvania territory is not <laughs> my uh, is not in my wheelhouse at all. I was very tempted to you said without looking up the card, I very easily could have looked up other cards in you know in the territory at the time, yeah, and technically not have cheated, but I didn't True, even do that. Yeah,
1: yeah. I okay. did
0: not do that. Yeah, I want I it. and I have spent a lot of time trying to figure out who would have teamed with Waldo against Anucci and Parisi at this point in time. I am drawing a complete blank. So you do not have to buy me a cake, but you do okay. have to tell me and our listeners who Laka is. Laka is. King Curtis Iakea. <laughs> 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 yeah that's interesting because so, a, a lot you know sometimes when you look at these typos, you can tell whether it's a transcription error from tra- error from trying to read someone's handwriting or from hearing it over the phone. And with these typos, I really can't tell <laughs> uh, unless I mean I, I think it has to be reading handwriting. Because especially the Browser and the Bruiser and the Van Ruskin and the Van the Von Roschke, it, it, those seem like it's more likely to have been uh, a mistake in trying to misread someone's handwriting. And uh, particularly handwriting. for Laka, I, <laughs> yeah. I can't see how you could say Ikea over the phone and someone hear Laka. But I could see how you would write out I, exactly. uh, you know, and because – that's such a weird combination of letters. Someone yeah. at the newspaper doesn't follow wrestling; would have no idea, and would try and match up letters into a word that like makes sense and follows the traditional pattern of words like Laka. Like Laka. <laughs> so yeah, so we'll uh, we'll tweet out those ads, and we'll also tweet out uh, a the cover of the June 1998. Edition of Wrestling Then and Thou, Now, oh, yeah. which yeah. features a drawing, an illustration of Eric the Red oh, yeah. by uh, a pretty uh, interesting artist slash wrestler. And that is Wayne St. Wayne, yep, also known as Wayne Hammer. So he drew this cover. But what's interesting is also... On this uh, newsletter cover, uh, it lists, you know, what's inside. It says Nikolai Volkov interview, Gina Hernandez remembered. And then it says debut of the jobber lock. <laughs> is that a column or is that there's is, is that something else? It's a column. OK, it's a column
1: written by I forget the guy's name. I could I could I mean the jobber jobber lock. That. We have Ginsburg's grab bag. Killer's Corner by Killer Kowalski, the jobber lock.
0: By Brian Walsh. Okay. Okay, so uh, he's a New England guy for yep. a billion years approximately. Yep. Yep. So yeah, so there's a little bit about the life and wrestling career of Eric the Red. You can always do your own research for more. Check out the YouTube playlist. But in this territory, Eric the Red actually had turned babyface uh, and was feuding with the Brute in the summer of 1978. And you can read more about the feud on our blog chartingtheterritories.com on our blog post for the third quarter of 1978 we have an anatomy of a feud and we look at all the known matches between eric the red and the brute uh in the summer of 1978 the see the earliest match is july 24th and the latest match looks to be september 27th so that's a good two months strong of them feuding throughout the territory it's one of the it's the second highest rated feud based on our flw statistic which stands for feud length in weeks the biggest feud during the quarter was ernie ladd versus paul orndorff with an flw of 3.80 weeks and the Brute and Eric the Red came in second with a 2.87. And this feud started um, with a TV angle, and there's a couple of different variations of the story, and I don't know which is accurate because, unfortunately, you know, 99% of McGurk's TV is gone and lost forever. But the, Eric the Red had been teaming with the Assassin, and it believes, uh, it looks like they split up, and it may have been. Um, well, The Assassin and The Brute, uh, but it may have been when The Brute was wrestling against an Enhancement Wrestler on TV and was absolutely destroying him, and Eric the Red suddenly out of nowhere came and made the save and later revealed that The Enhancement Wrestler was his younger brother, Oh, which is really interesting and and unique, but I can't verify it. It's also possible it was just a pretty basic angle where the two were, you know, teamed up and, uh, you know, the brute and Eric, the Red teamed up and had a disagreement, but they feud around the horn. And, uh, and remember earlier in the year, brute had lost a loser leave town match to Orndorf. He left for a good, at least 30 days. It might even have been 60 days, but he did come back. And then he did, uh, start this feud with Eric, the red. And I believe the brute won most of the blow-off matches. We don't have a lot of results, but uh, given that Eric Thereto was leaving, it makes sense that the Brute would win the feud.
1: Pretty standard feuds as far as feuds go, just the singles, you know, followed by the Lights Out, Lumberjack, Texas Death, blah, 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 blah. There's one one match that I love, the stipulation, I think it was Alexandria, where they have the, uh, where it's billed as ordered back by demand of the NWA, which I I love, such a sucker when the NWA gets involved and someone's yeah. getting and a telegram from Sam Muchnik or they got right. Bob Geigel on the phone. I love it.
0: And really, and all that means is that the the previous match was probably a double, you know, a no contest or a double DQ or a double count out. And because they chose not to give a fancy stipulation this time around, they would just they would call it a grudge rematch or they would say it's ordered back by the NWA. Just again, some sort of new hook to uh, get you to want to pay to see the match again. Uh, there's also feuds between Ladd and Candy, as we mentioned. Uh, a feud between the Assassin and Steven Littlebear. Bear. Orndorff is feuding a little bit with Ron Bass. And Jaggers and Brown, Bobby Jaggers and Jerry Brown, are feuding with Jose Lothario and Mike George. Now, in the case of that tag team feud, the FLW score only takes into account the exact combinations of matches. So, for example, as we mentioned earlier a few months ago when I first started discussing FLW, you can't necessarily do JYD versus the Freebirds. Well, you can't do it easily. Or the Von Ericks versus the Freebirds, taking into account all combinations of matches between any and all of them. And in this case, it really looks like Jaggers and Brown are mostly feuding with Mike George, who would team up with a few different partners, the most regular of which was Lothario. So perhaps if I did a separate FLW calculation for Jaggers and Brown versus Mike George and X, we would see that it was a bigger feud. But one of those X's was a wrestler by the name of Jim Shields. And this is our, when is a title change, not a title change, when it's a title change, unless it isn't (laughs) Section. The U.S. tag team champions, Bobby Jaggers and Jerry Brown, were advertised to defend the titles against Mike George and Steven Littlebear on September 25th in Tulsa. Results from the paper indicate George ended up teaming with Jim Shields, and they won the match. The Tulsa newspaper was notorious for not listing details, such as if the win was by disqualification or anything like that, so just because they say they won the match doesn't necessarily mean it was by pinfall or submission it may not have been clean the following week a rematch is advertised and it's a title it's advertised again as a title match and this time it's george and shields against jaggerson brown the paper doesn't specify who the champions of record are going into the match it just says us tag team title match jaggerson brown versus george and shields And the results start with the headline, Jaggers and Brown win title, and goes on to say that Jaggers and Brown, quote, teamed up to take the tag team title match. So when you look at these results, without, you know, having a real actual title history, you know, that's documented, it's a reasonable assumption that if it says that Jaggers and Brown win the title, that that means they must have lost the titles which means that they would have lost them the previous week to Mike George and Jim Shields and now these tulsa results have not been part of the historical record uh, there are some tulsa results but they are not complete but a few years ago i went to the public library in tulsa and got complete results and this this these results were actually part of a uh, large group of Tulsa results that I gave to a guy by the name of Chris Knights who is an editor for WrestlingData.com. So he plugged all these in and as he read th- these results, he, you know, interpreted as, okay, this means Shields and George won the titles on 925 because it's billed as a title match and the results say they won and the following week in a title match again, it says Jaggers and Brown win the titles. So he put it in as a title change and this was a title change that had not been previously part of any documented title history which leads to me then getting a direct message from the guy who runs the WrestlingTitles.com page and Twitter account asking me about it because I guess he, he might have some sort of a a system where anytime a new title change is added to wrestling data, it, you know, sends him a message Uh, so he can update his site. Uh, So it's sort of a circular thing where I sent stuff to Chris Knights who then put it in, who then, you know, somehow it notified the wrestling titles guy who then asked me. So I, I ended up pulling Chris into this and I said, look, I, I see I see what it says, just like you do, but I don't think it's a title change. And I'm going to say why. Over the last few years, I've looked at literally thousands and thousands of newspaper results from all over the US and Canada. And there are several occasions, I might even say more than several, I might, I might even be above a dozen or so, where the paper when there's a title match whoever wins the match the paper just says they won the titles as opposed to saying they won the title match mm. and again this this is the newspaper guys not only not understanding the way pro wrestling works but in many ways not caring as much yeah. about accuracy and attention to detail when it comes to recapping the wrestling shows. It sure seems like in most cases it's a necessary evil that the paper does. They print these wrestling results in the sports section just so the fans don't write them angry letters. And I still looking through all these newspapers, you see tons of angry letters from wrestling fans over the years arguing (laughs) about not enough coverage or how they, it's all tongue in cheek. So, There's some other reasons why I don't think it's a title. First, as I mentioned earlier, this title change or possible title change had never been listed in any title history record. It's not in Oliver and Johnson's book. It was never on wrestling data. It was never on wrestling titles. There was never any mention of it before. Also, in the case of Jim Shields, He's never really pushed above mid-card status here. His spot rating never got above a 0.5 for his six to eight month run in the territory and mostly hovers right around a 0.4. Also, while the territory did do the occasional quickie title switch, in this era, Shreveport was where they did it. Shreveport was their, seems to be, if not their A town, if not their biggest drawing town, it's the town where... Title changes happen because, again, uh, I believe they're taping the TV here at this point. They're not at the Boys Club yet. They're at the TV studio. But because of that, it seems that their home base is is more in Shreveport than in Tulsa. So they're doing title changes and things like that in Shreveport. And I've never seen one. I've never seen a one-week title change in Tulsa in the McGurk-Watts era. Another reason Jaggers and Brown were advertised as champions on at least two cards in between September 25th and October 2nd. This includes a September 29th card in Shreveport, where the results explicitly list them as retaining the titles against George and Ray Candy. And not only is Shreveport their main you know, town, their home base, but it's also first in the cycle, in the loop, since they're doing live TV there on Saturday mornings. Yeah. So... That means that at that point in time, if Jaggers and Brown are defending the titles in Shreveport, they hadn't lost the titles. Now, to be fair, I will also present a couple of reasons why it may have been a title change. Again, all I'm saying is there's not enough information to prove one way or the other beyond a shadow of a doubt. My educated guess is no, but here's two reasons why it could have been. Shields was a sub for Steven Little Bear. Remember, the original advertised match was for Mike George and Steven Little Bear to be the challengers. So with a substitution, a lot of times, you know, you can say, well, maybe they, since the fans are disappointed that Steven Little Bear is not there. And this, you know, this preliminary slash mid-carder Jim Shields has taken his place, perhaps giving them the titles will make up for the disappointment in the fans because they get to see a title change. This was something that was done in Monroe, Louisiana several years earlier when Dr. X was supposed to defend the title against Danny Hodge, and Hodge was in a car accident on the way to the show. They brought in Ramon Torres as a sub, and Torres won the title at the house show. So there's precedence for that. The other thing, while Shields was a rookie, and he was mostly being used in prelims, he had been an All-American wrestler at Oklahoma State, and... At this time, I believe he was coaching wrestling at a high school in Tulsa. So Hmm. perhaps given that, that he's got amateur credentials in the state and he may be a very minor celebrity in Tulsa because again, wrestling is huge in Tulsa and in Oklahoma in general and the wrestling coach at a high school in Tulsa is probably a bigger deal. Uh, than in most places so he may have been just well known enough to for them to do this one week quickie switch in Tulsa if it was a title switch like I said it's only acknowledged in Tulsa and a week later Jaggers and Brown get it back it also may have been one of those deals that we've talked about where the titles were held up with a controversial finish the first week and so the rematch, Jaggerson Brown winning the titles could mean they won they won the held up titles or re won the held up titles that they never truly lost. Hmm. So yeah, that's uh, our ongoing series: yeah. when is a title change, <laughs> yep. not a title change? When is a title change, unless it isn't? Yep. Now there's a, quite a few title changes in wrestling that are similar to this, where there's a question we'll as to whether or not it actually was a title change. And and speaking yeah. of questions john oh, oh, dear. oh dear here we go Whew. okay <laughs> Music can mean only one thing. It's time for John <laughs> yeah. plays Gordon Solie's yeah. Championship Wrestling Trivia. Here we go. Okay. I've got a card with four questions. I think, I think you'll definitely get two of them right. I think there's a very okay. good chance you'll get all four of them right. All right, um, yeah. but. Before I ask the first question, it's interesting because there's a little tie-in here, but besides the regulars in the McGurk territory in the third quarter of 1978, our blog also has a list of part-timers, which includes um, local guys who are used, you know, just a couple of shows, uh, you know, here and there, or wrestlers who were in other territories at the time but picked up a stray booking here and there, uh, perhaps when the other territory had a day off. Among those those part-timers were two members of the Von Erich family, David and Kevin. And I think both of them make their first appearance in the McGurk-Watts territory in the summer of 1978. And of course, by the summer of 78, both David and Kevin were full-time wrestlers. Uh, Their brother, Kerry, had a handful of matches under his belt. I think his uh, debut was in July, and he only wrestled sporadically until, uh, I think, later in the year or maybe until 79. But the first question on the card, the trivia card I randomly picked out of Gordon Soli's Championship Wrestling Trivia is about the Von Erichs. Okay. Which Von Erich family member made his professional debut on August 10th, 1976 in Dallas, Texas by defeating Paul Pershman? Paul Pershman, of course, is played by Buddy Rose. Uh, yes, and if that was the question, you'd have gotten it right. But, John, that's not the question. I know. (laughs) You're just stalling for time (laughs) while you think. So again, well, we know there were five Von Erich brothers. It's definitely not Chris. And given what I said just, you know, 30 seconds ago, it wasn't Mike. (laughs) And it's probably not Carrie. So I've now narrowed it down from a 20% chance of getting it a random guess right to to a a 50% 50%. chance. So August 10th, 1976, was it? I will guess that. It was Kevin. You are correct. Yes! Kevin debuted first in 76. I don't think David debuted until a year later. Huh. So, yeah. And how cool is that that his first match is against uh, the future Playboy Buddy Rose? So, Uh Kevin Von Erich, whose brother is the second finest physical specimen ever in pro wrestling, and Kevin Von Erich's first opponent was the first ever greatest physical specimen in wrestling. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right, question number two. Under what name was Silo Sam formerly known? Silo Sam. Right, was Silo so first off, do you know Sam. who Silo Sam is? Yeah. Okay, he, he of course had a cameo in the greatest movie about a grown man and a stolen bicycle ever. Yes. Um, <laughs> was he Little John? Was that the name? You are so close, although in a way you're also incredibly far away. Incredibly far away. Big John Harris. Big John Harris. All right. Third question: What TV star was involved in the first two WrestleManias, but not the third? That's Mr. T. Mr. T. I would I would have pitied you if you did not get that one <laughs> correct. Thankfully, you <laughs> did. And. I have a feeling based on the wording of that question as well as the next question that this now further narrows down the publication date of Gordon Soly's championship wrestling trivia. Okay. Because it seems it seems like this would have come out after WrestleMania three, but not bef- but not after WrestleMania four. Gotcha. Given the way it's worded. So now the fourth question, you're two for three. So right now you have a C, but if you get this one no, actually no, I'm sorry, two out of three is a D. Jeez. But if you get this one right, you'll move up to a C. Okay. Of course, if you get it wrong, you'll fail. Yeah. But no pressure or anything. <laughs> True or false, Tito Santana has competed in WrestleManias 1, 2, and 3.
1: I know he was in WrestleMania 1, also wrestling against Paul Pershman uh, as the executioner. Um, I know he was in three. Uh, did he have a match in WrestleMania 2? Oh,
0: cool. WrestleMania two is tough. Well, off the top of your head, what what were some of the feature matches at WrestleMania two?
1: There was Hogan Bundy. Right, that was at the L A. portion. L A. Um, there was Roddy. And Mr. T in the boxing match. And that was from Union Dale. Union Dale in the Chicago match. I don't remember what the Chicago it was a Battle Royal? Was Tito okay. in the Battle Royal? Tito, yeah, I'll say he's in the Battle Royal.
0: Uh, you are correct. Whew. I sort of walked you through that one. once you yeah, once you realize there's a battle royal, then you say, <laughs> if I can't recall a match Tito was in, given we know he's in the WWF at that time, yeah. it he absolutely would have been in the battle Royal or in a match. So there you go. So three out of four for a C 75%. Yeah. Great. Great. If it was
1: baseball.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It'd be fantastic if it was baseball, but John, this is not baseball.
1: No. No.
0: (laughs) All right. So, all right, well, we'll, we'll, uh, John will put his uh, thinking cap on. Perhaps he will uh, see if he can borrow some of George, the animal steals ring gear from when he was the student. I knew who Paul Pershman was. I should get something for that. Uh, oh, oh, what do you want? What do you want for, for knowing <laughs> that Paul Pershman was uh, Buddy Rose and the Executioner? You a want C-plus? a half a point? You want a third of a I point? Can I get a C plus? How about a C plus? C plus. I'll give you a C plus, John. Okay. that's nice. All right. You got a C plus. <laughs> now, a little further down the cards in the summer of 1978 are the mid carters who had an average weekly spot rating between 0.40 and 0.60. And this quarter, they included Cowboy Bob Ellis, Skip Young, The Avenger, Brian Blair, Jerry Stubbs, and Ali Bay. Now, there's a couple of wrestlers that are uh, moving from one level to another. Uh, in the case of Cowboy Bob Ellis, he's moving up the cards. During this time, by the end of the quarter, he's an upper mid-carter, but his average spot rating for the whole quarter placed him as a mid-carter because he's being moved up the cards as he's getting pushed. And the Avenger, who is Reggie Parks, who we've talked about previously on this podcast, was moving in the opposite direction. He had been an upper mid-carter, but he is now finishing up his run and thus being moved down the cards, moving from an upper mid-carter in July down to a mid Carter in August, and then leaving the territory in September. One of the wrestlers we talked about is uh, uh, one of those Swamp Thing-type wrestlers where I think all of our listeners know who he is and know a couple of things about him, but don't know the whole picture, and that is Jerry Stubbs. Mm -hmm. So Jerry Stubbs grew up in the Atlanta area, and he actually was a two-sport athlete as a younger man. So, John, what were those two sports?
1: He's was an exceptional uh, b- baseball and basketball player. One time, uh, you know, holding the single-game scoring record for the Forest Park Panther basketball team. Uh, no slouch on the baseball diamond either. Played uh, high school ball, shortstop for DeKalb Junior College, now Georgia Perimeter College. Uh, at age 20 in 1971, he actually played 12 games for the Gulf Coast League Pirates in Florida, uh, moving behind the plate to catcher. I think he played shortstop in uh, in high school. Do you know um, what, the level, Gulf Coast,
0: what level of the minor league
1: system that was? The Gulf Coast League, which I still think exists but under a different name, is like a rookie minor league. And I think there's another one on the West Coast, Arizona. I think together they form the absolute lowest rung on the minor league baseball ladder. But, you know, he he, Still, he made it that far. Yeah. Um he uh seven hits in thirty seven played appearances, batting one ninety four. So I, I was you know thinking the Mendoza line maybe you could refer to batting under one ninety five as the as the Stubbs. The, the Stubbs line. line. Stubbs line. Uh defensively no errors in twelve games, two pass balls. Uh but that was that is basically the end of Jerry's uh, baseball career—nothing to be ashamed of, though. Baseball, baseball is hard. Um,
0: it is, and yeah. It, yeah, and and you know they do draft a lot of these guys out of high school um, yep. and, and give them a shot. And you know, again, to, just to be nominated is an honor. So just to play for any level of minor leagues is, oh, yeah. is an honor. So um, after that, uh, and and even in the early days of his wrestling career, he is also working as a police officer. in Georgia in the early days of his wrestling career. Uh, We've got some early footage of Jerry Stubbs. And uh, again, we will put together a playlist and put this on our YouTube channel. First up is a TV match from 1978 with Jerry Stubbs against Harley Race. And this is your standard... Uh, Harley race as world champion TV match uh, when he comes to the territory. Stubbs gets uh, a little bit of shine offense early. And then Harley slowly, methodically, not slowly because it's only, you know, a, a several minutes long. But, you know, w- methodically wears him down and, and takes over. And except for a very brief uh, attempt at a comeback by Stubbs, it, it's all over for him after his initial flurry. There's also a match from 1987, with Jerry Stubbs taking on uh, another man who would have uh, hair follicle issues, la- you know, later in his career as well. <laughs> Stubbs had them very early on. Stubbs had them from the get-go, but yeah. uh, his opponent in this match in 1987 would have them years later, and that is Bob Holly. And this is from the uh, the World Organization Wrestling out of Pensacola in 1987. Also a match from uh, Mid South in 1983. A battle of the masked men, Mr. Olympia and Mr. Wrestling, and I'll tell you, if you watch the 1978 match and look at Jerry Stubbs, and then compare him to the physique of uh, of Mr. Olympia in 1983, you'd almost think there's no way that Jerry Stubbs is Mr. Olympia here. Yeah, uh, he I... he really bulked up and thickened up a lot uh, yeah, before becoming Mr. Olympia.
1: It's what's interesting to me, um, like, like I said, he's in freaking great shape uh, in Mid-South. Um, and what I always thought was really odd is like Mid-South, of all the territories that he worked, Mid-South, the travel is probably the worst, or he spent the most time traveling than any other territory. But he looks Amazing, as opposed to a couple years later, and he's working Continental. He's not like out of shape by any stretch of imagination. He just didn't look like this. And you would figure less travel, more gym or something. But I did. It's, it's I thought so that was really interesting. The mid south, you always hear about the, the the road trips being so crazy but he's in such a good, good shape despite all that. So I always thought that was really. And
0: there are two possible explanations. The first being when you dedicate yourself to fitness, it doesn't matter how long you're on the road for you. Find the time you find, find the yeah. gym. There is also another, you know, another possible reason why his physique looks great. Uh, even if he's not hitting the gym all the time. <laughs> Although <laughs> that reason does require you to still put in the hours at the gym, but you know, there were shortcuts available to professional wrestlers in the 80s. And from what I've heard, a few of them used them. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I've, also, I've also heard that he may have at some point had uh, like an abdominal injury of some sort. So
0: that maybe maybe that prevented
1: him from. Maintaining Uh, keeping up with his
0: regimen or what have you. Yes, Uh, there's also a match from uh, Continental in 1986 with Stubbs versus Frankie Lancaster. You know, Stubbs is one of those guys, Stubbs is perennially on the um, the, the you know, the wrestling historians' list of most underrated wrestlers. And what's interesting is three of the wrestlers who I always see on those lists all have ties to Southeastern and Continental. Uh, the one that's always on the top of everyone's list is Brad Armstrong. Mm-hmm. Stubbs is usually on those lists, and also Bill Ash is often on those lists. Mm. And and those are three wrestlers that, uh, you know, when it comes to their in-ring work, they were absolutely spectacular. And while we understand that Junkyard Dog was not as good as Brad Armstrong as far as technical wrestling and ability and athleticism goes, we understand that Junkyard Dog possessed other intangibles that led to him becoming a main event superstar that Brad and Jerry and Bill Ash, all three of them, didn't have. And that's look, charisma, size, um, you know. But all three of them are fantastic wrestlers, and all three of them uh, worked for uh, the Fullers, in, yeah. the, in the 80s. So interesting to, to see how many underrated, underappreciated wrestlers pass through one of the most underappreciated territories yeah. in, uh, around. Now, and there's a couple of interviews with Jerry Stubbs that we're going to provide links to. Uh, John, you found these. Um, one is from a site called the Wormwood Chronicles. And it's actually the site itself is offline, but the interview is still available through the uh, Internet Archive. Um, and what what stuck out to you uh, about this interview, which is uh, conducted by someone named Sir Lawrence, a leg drop. Oh, that's not a real name. It's all spelled as one A L E G D R O P. I'm like, is this? Uh, am I supposed to pronounce it with an accent? And then I realize, oh, a leg drop. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, there's uh, you know it's, it's a very short interview, not a lot of uh, new info, but there is a quick story that. Uh, Jerry Stubbs tells about the Mister Perfect gimmick, which he, uh, if you watch this match that we talked about, the the, the Jerry Stubbs versus Frankie the Thumper Lancaster match, the Jerry Stubbs is doing the the Mister Perfect sort of thing there, um, and he talks about being on tour in Japan uh, with Kurt Hennig. Uh, probably 87 I would imagine from and talking about the gimmick and Henny wanting to use the gimmick and Stubbs so just giving him his blessings. Like, yeah, if you, if it gets over, you know, kid, just uh, send me a bottle of Jack Daniels. So, uh, Needless to say, the, the, the gimmick did get over for, for her turning, and Kurt Hennig was uh, made good on his promise and sent Jerry Stubbs the bottle of Jack
0: Daniels. Yeah, so, the, tour, was, the, the tour, the the only time they were both in Japan at the same time was early 1987, and okay. Kurt debuted the Mr. Perfect character in the second half of 1988. Okay. So it's a good year after yep. that, that that he did it. But yeah, according to Jerry, uh, <laughs> Kurt made good on his promise and sent him a bottle of Jack
1: Wow,
0: that's nice to hear <laughs> yeah, and there's a uh, another longer interview that is from uh, quadcitiesdaily.com, and this was uh conducted by Bobby Inman for quad Cities Daily. Uh, in this one, what's uh one thing that stood out to you from this interview and this the both of these interviews they' they're they are good reads, but it's a lot of so you worked for this person. tell me about him. You worked here. What were your favorite memories of here?
1: Yeah, the what the thing that, and this is the thing I found most interesting is uh, probably one of those things he just said. Um, He speaks very highly of his time working for Fuller. Obviously, he enjoyed working there. He was there probably well over half of his career. Um, He also speaks really highly of Watts and working in Mid-South. He got paid really well. Fans are super into it. He says that Watts was really demanding, but that's what he liked about him. Um, And it's interesting looking at Watts like we do and talking about him because you find guys who were higher level athletes like Jerry Stubbs, like Steve Williams, like Jim Duggan, et cetera, et cetera. Those guys seem to almost feed Off of that, like the idea of being like coached or having that authority figure in their athletic slash professional life, is just something that's been ingrained in them since they were little kids playing playing sports. As opposed to someone like Jake Roberts, who was just like, "Oh, I was a bully and an an asshole," Um, and all of those things. Both of those things can be true.
0: (laughs) It's just I I think to be a good sports coach, you have to be a bully and an asshole. Yeah, Uh, they go hand in hand.
1: It's just. Some guys like, you know, like the, the Stubbs and the Dr. Death and the, the Hacksaw look at that as motivation and other guys look at it as, you know, a a, a disincentive to to work harder. So I, just, I just thought that was really interesting to. to
0: yeah. Know, based that. on their background before they started working for Watts. Yeah. yeah That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, besides Stubbs, other newcomers making their first appearance in the territory during the third quarter of 1978 were Bill Irwin. Herb Calvert, Jim Shields, and Ricky Fields. Shields and Fields. They should have teamed them up, The Shields <laughs> and Fields. Now, we talked briefly about Jim Shields earlier. He had uh, some legitimate amateur credentials, uh, and so did Herb Calvert. As a matter of fact, Herb Calvert broke a record for most pins in a season uh, at uh, at the school, and the previous record holder was Danny Hodge. Oh, wow. Uh yeah and and Herb actually after his wrestling career was over he went on to work for a company called Canteen Vending and he was affectionately known as the Candy Man uh because he he was the guy that would always come and restock uh the candy machines for various businesses So if Ray Candy was at one point the Candy Man we talked about him and Brad Armstrong who he talked about just a little bit ago, was also known as the Candyman. This makes Herb Calvert the third wrestler known as the Candyman. Oh, God, be careful. You're going to get the, you know, that guy with the bees in his mouth will show up. (laughs) Jeez. So, yeah, uh, all sorts of uh, that. And, of course, on the blog, you can see listings for all the known house shows in the territory during the quarter with the advertised lineups. On our blog, our records have 143 house shows in a 13 week period. So that's an average of 11 per week. And again, you can look at the schedule on the blog, but basically they're running two towns a night. And this is a change from just a few years earlier when they were often running three and on occasion four a night during the week. But at some point, I believe in the middle of 77, they sort of scale back and they're running a pretty much set two shows every night of the week, uh, Monday through Friday. Saturdays, we know a little less about. And Sundays, they run HOMA regularly every week. And every now and then, they seem to run another show on a Sunday. And it's usually in the afternoon. And it's usually a town that's normally run another day of the week. So perhaps they found a spot town to run on Tuesday. So for that week, they moved the Tuesday regular venue to a Sunday afternoon show. But The calendar, as it pretty much is standard, Mondays were Jackson, Mississippi and Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tuesdays in July, it's Shreveport and Alexandria, both in Louisiana. But in August, Shreveport moves to Fridays and Oklahoma City moves to Tuesdays. Oklahoma City and Lafayette, Louisiana, were Fridays. But after August, it becomes Lafayette and Shreveport. Wednesdays is typically Baton Rouge and Monroe. Thursdays is generally Little Rock and the New Orleans market. And they normally ran uh, in a a town just outside of New Orleans proper called Chalmette. Saturdays, they regularly ran in L'Orange, and they probably were running spot shows. It's also possible, and I don't know this for a fact, but I'm open to the idea that since they were taping TV Saturday morning in Shreveport, perhaps the crew that worked TV did not work a house show later in the day. Huh. I if This goes against everything we have heard about wrestling, that they're working house shows every night, blah, 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 blah. The more I look into this, the more I see that in and of itself is demonstrably false at some times. And here, I think if they're always if they're always running a full crew on Saturday nights, we'd have at least more shows from other towns or from spot towns that could help me prove that. And the fact that we don't leads me to be at least open to the idea that they're not running the full crew on house show saturday night that they are sending one crew to la uh, of course they also run the superdome on the saturday night and that's pretty much all hands on deck but that they might just might tell the wrestlers who work tv saturday morning to take the rest of the day off hmm. Thank you. Now, they're also running Vicksburg, Mississippi, uh, and it seems to be a sort of a fill-in town. It's usually run on Wednesday nights. Um, Perhaps when they, like I said, when they move the Baton Rouge card to Sunday, it it looks like Vicksburg takes its place on Wednesday night. And Jackson had been being run on Wednesday. Recall that the split between McGurk and the Culkins happened the year prior in 77. And originally... Watts and McGurk were running Jackson head-to-head on Wednesdays, which had been the traditional night. And the Culkins had the traditional building, which was the fairgrounds, and McGurk and Watts ran a venue, I think it's like four miles away. But at some point earlier in 78, Watts and McGurk moved from Wednesdays to Mondays. Now, again, without actual data, we don't know what the attendance was. We don't know who won you know, the the Jackson wrestling war on Wednesday night. But uh, to me, the fact that McGurk and Watts moved away from head to head says something. Hmm. Doesn't necessarily mean they were losing, they were being outdrawn. It just means that, you know, they they could have just decided, uh, you know what, we're not trying to beat them. And and also keep in mind, perhaps Watts' line of thinking in 1978 was, we don't want to beat them yet. Hmm. Yeah. You know, this is the other thing that comes into play. In 1978, the Culkins were separated from McGurk and Watts. McGurk and Watts were together. But it's very possible that at this point in time, Watts already has the long game in mind. Yeah, that's true. And perhaps it's in his best interest to not kill Mississippi for the Culkins, but yeah. to let it last let it continue until Watts is ready slash able slash willing to make his move. Yeah. So again, this is one of the unfortunate things since uh, the history of pro wrestling is often told by whoever won in the end or whoever speaks, speaks the loudest. We yeah. typically don't have every <laughs> side of the story. And in this case, it's not even a matter of getting the second side here. We literally need two other sides. Hmm. And I, I, you know, I have a, a, some, a little bit of a relationship with Gil Culkin and we've talked a little bit. He really doesn't like talking too much about the behind the scenes stuff aside from what's in his book. Um, and I have uh, tried to open up a dialogue with Leroy's daughter, Mike McGurk, um, have not had success. But, you know, perhaps over time we can uh, continue to work on building these relationships because I would love to hear from all three sides about you know what was happening from
1: 1977 through 1979. Yeah, yeah. Even even the the, the little little the bits and pieces we you hear from from Mike McGurk that on on you know here and there are are very interesting. So yeah, it makes me want to hear more from her.
0: So it's it's always a quest for John and I to learn things, and we <laughs> learn new things Hello. each and every month. And what a fantastic segue to our That's monthly segment entitled nice. This Month I Learned, where each month both John and I name one new thing we learned during the month. So, John, what did you learn this month? So,
1: Earlier this month, I was uh, looking into the, the Ox, some Ox Baker stuff. And, of, of course, looking into Ox Baker and his cookbook, you eventually, you know, you get to the story of Alberto Torres, Ray Gunkel, uh, da-da-da-da. And you, you and you hear like a three different versions of these stories. Um, with some overlap in the story. You know, the work story that Oxbaker killed these men with the dreaded heart punch. Uh, the version more based in reality that yes, these guys unfortunately died following matches with Oxbaker, but he was not responsible for their deaths directly. And the Ox Baker version, which is more or less based in what actually happened, with some details left out that are are interesting in their omission. Um so this month I learned that it wasn't even Ox Baker who was in the ring with Alberto Torres when the, the ultimately fatal injury occurred on June thirteenth, nineteen seventy-one. It was in a tag match, Ox and the Claw it was uh, Tom Andrews against Torres and Cowboy Bob Ellis. Um I should note here that Ox says partner for this match was Ollie Anderson, but everything I've been able to find puts 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 the claw in the ring as Ox's partner. So during yeah, and the
0: match, and Oli and Tom are both there because uh, the, this is for the Duceks. Um, yep, yeah, yeah. They're they're both there, so it, it could have yep. been either of them. But, it... um, but
1: during the match, Claw comes off the middle rope, lands on Torres. Three days later, Torres dies of a ruptured pancreas. At the time, the death of of, of Torres was uh, I. I hesitate to use the word attributed because it sounds so cold and callous in 2022, but it was attributed to the claw, not Ox Baker. Um, Promoter Joe Dusseck, said, even brought in Ramon Torres, did a TV angle where he vowed revenge, uh, you know, upon the, for the death of his brother. Uh, This angle was not well received (laughs) and Omaha business did, did suffer because of it. Uh, And with Ray Gunkel, You know, Ox was in the ring with him. Gunkel Gunkel actually won the match in question. Uh, But during the match, I guess Ox chops Gunkel in the chest, which caused a hematoma, which dislodged a blood clot, which led to Gunkel uh, suffering from coronary artery disease, uh, led to his death. Uh, So earlier this month, I learned that it wasn't until after this incident that Ox Baker started using the heart punch. Or the, or the Hurt Punch, as he renamed it, as per Stan Stasiaks request. So the whole heart Punch, as his deadly finisher, was sort of, uh, I guess, retconned, as we yeah. say today. Um, yeah, and I'll send I'll have a newspaper article that I clipped of the, the Torres Claw thing, if you want to post that. But yeah, and I think that was really Interesting, and even um,
0: that the Torres death was retconned or outside of the Dusick's was attributed to Ox, whereas the Dusick, you know, Dusick said it was the Claw. And if you're not yeah. familiar with the Claw, Tom Andrews, he later on was one of the interns/slash medics, uh, teaming with Jim Starr, and that's probably what he's best known for.
1: Yeah, if you and if anyone is. is further interested in the Ox Baker Art Bunch stuff, there's, I can direct you to uh, there's an Ox Baker interview uh, conducted by Scott Teal that was just reprinted in his Wrestling Archive Project series, Volume 3 great interview with Ox uh, and you know the Melter's Obituary of Ox Baker from the October 27th, 2014 edition of The Observer. This is a great uh,
0: little compare-contrast the stories there. Okay, so Ox Baker, I, I, I learned he had a cookbook. I'm, I, now I want that. I want to compare. I, I want to see if they have if he has a similar dish uh, that, that matches up with something in Hodge's cookbook and, and cook both of them and see which one's better. There you go. Now, as far as me, uh, not too long ago, I was in Washington State. Uh, I went, um, as part of my baseball expedition, I went to a Seattle Mariners game, but actually stayed in the state for a couple of days afterwards and went to Olympia, to visit the Washington state archives and the Washington state library to the archives has some, uh, uh, has some files as well. Some have a ton of files from the state athletic commission, uh, including wrestling stuff. They have license applications. Uh, They also have show reports. So for every show held in the state, um, they have several pages worth of information uh, listing who you know the wrestlers who are on their show, their license numbers, this and that. Um, uh, the ringside physicians report. So if you want to know the resting heart rate or the blood pressure of a uh, uh, physical specimen. But he Rose when he was wrestling in Washington State you could find that out also has the number of tickets sold and you know by tier how many ringside how many ga how many this and that what the oh, prices yeah. were thus it has the gate and you know the uh, the how much was paid to the commission what they got five percent so it's got gate figures for every show held in the state of Washington oh,
1: wow. so
0: there's a treasure trove of data for a wrestling historian such as I but the, that's not what I learned this month. What I learned this month is that the 6.08 p.m. Amtrak from Olympia to Seattle is always late. <laughs> when I finished up at the uh, the State Archives or State Library, I, of course, had bought a ticket to uh, go back to Seattle uh, for the 6.08 p.m. train. And I get there and it says delayed to 7.10 so I'm like, oh, all right, nothing, and and it's nowhere near any businesses or restaurants or anything like that. It's in the middle of nowhere, so I'm sort of stuck there. there. Um, within 20 minutes, it was then uh, changed from 7:10 to about 7:40. So I went up to the guy working behind the desk and I said, uh, you know, what's the deal? He's like, oh, it's always like that. As the most matter-of-factly way possible, said, yes, it's always an hour and a half late um this train it's a very long route it actually originates in los angeles the day before Hmm. so given how many stops are along the way i certainly understand how uh you know being late it accumulates over time but i mean if it's always late then just change the fucking time yeah if it's never there before seven o'clock don't call it a 608 call it a seven o'clock then people yeah. be like, oh, it's only 20 minutes late. Good deal. Instead of, oh, it's an hour and 20 minutes late. This sucks. Yeah. But yes, this month I learned the 6.08 p.m. Amtrak from Olympia, <laughs> Washington to Seattle, Washington is always late. Ugh. These are the kinds of uh, important, you know, yeah. earth shattering uh, bits of knowledge that you learn from listening to our podcast each and every month. And next month we will finish up our look at 1966 <laughs> as we cover the fourth quarter of the year. The assassins return, and so do the medics, but they're not the same medics, but they kind of sort of are, even though they're not. Hmm. We also have John Tolis's brother and gorgeous George's son, although only one of those relationships is legitimate, plus all the usual features, and you never know what to expect. We might have a surprise up our sleeve for next month's Hmm. podcast. Until then, I'm Al Getz. You can find me on Twitter at Al Getz Wrestling. That's Al-G-E-T-Z Wrestling. And a lot of the articles and clippings and pictures we talked about when discussing Eric the Red and Jerry Stubbs, I will tweet those out um, shortly after this podcast comes out. So be sure to follow me to be able to see those and go to our YouTube channel charting the territories uh just search for charting the territories on youtube and our blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com. now john uh tell our listeners where they can find you on twitter and uh anything else you've got in the works
1: oh yeah uh twitter at j-o-n underscore b-o-u-c-h-e-r follow me and help me in my my march to 2000 slow march two thousand. two uh, thousand. YouTube, just search for UWA Luthes. Uh, you'll find that stuff. If you're into like, if, if you if you've if you've made it this far in our podcast, you'll probably enjoy this footage. I can say that with a lot of a lot
0: of confidence in my voice. Uh, you, you'll might enjoy some of this footage. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, and that's, that's it. And of course, be sure to uh, tune into Vice TV on uh, Tuesday, October fourth for the oh, premiere wow. episode of that's the so territories. Soon. Yeah, I mean, some of our listeners, by the time they get around to this, it Ah. might already be there. Uh, Of course, John was uh, a, I guess, consultant. Yeah. Be sure to check that out on Tuesday, October 4th. Our blog Mm -hmm. is updated regularly. This podcast comes out the fourth Thursday of every month. And this is one of those months where there are five Thursdays in a month. So we're, we're coming out not on the last Thursday of the month, but we're coming out on the fourth Thursday of the month. And to be the first to know when new podcast episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. For John Boucher, this is Al Getz. Thanks for listening, and we will see all of you in October. See you in October, folks.